Jonah 3. We'll read all of this chapter together this morning. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The word of the Lord. So thus far in the story of Jonah, we have seen a number of different things transpire. Um, Here's what we know from the text alone thus far. Jonah is a prophet of the Lord. Uh, We know that Jonah was living during the period of the divided kingdom when Israel split in two and formed the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. We know Jonah was living in that northern kingdom of Israel, and he was living during the time of King Jeroboam II. Um, And the book of 2 Kings said that Jeroboam II was an evil king, and he was an evil king because he didn't worship the Lord. We find out in chapter 1 that Jonah is called by God to go to the Assyrian city of Nineveh and call call out against it. The Ninevites or the Assyrians are the great enemy of Israel. And one day down the road, they will ultimately destroy Israel and scatter the tribes of Israel. But for reasons unbeknownst to us, at least at this point in the narrative account, Jonah tries to run away from the Lord. He boards a ship bound for a city called Tarshish. We don't really know where Tarshish is, but perhaps on the other side of the Mediterranean, like, let let me get as far away from here as I can possibly go. But the Lord sends a great storm to disrupt his trip. He finds himself on a boat out in the Mediterranean in the middle of this storm with a bunch of pagan sailors, and the pagan sailors cast lots, which is to say they basically draw straws to figure out why this storm has come upon them, because in their um, pagan ideology, they assume any kind of natural disaster, any kind of major thing like a storm, it must be the gods who are facilitating this, and, and it must be somebody's fault. The gods must be trying to punish somebody among us, and so they cast lots. The lots fall on Jonah, and the irony of that whole situation is it's not the gods doing it, but it is God doing this. He has brought this storm upon them because of Jonah's disobedience. 
So they bring Jonah out of the hold where he's been sleeping throughout this whole storm. And they go, who are you? Where did you come from? Why have you brought this upon us? And Jonah tells them. What he says is, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. We talked about that last week. And he says, I'm running away from God. And so he's honest with them. But they go, what in the world can we do to stop this? How do we get this storm to end? And Jonah very simply says, pick me up and throw me into the ocean. And the storm will cease. And these guys, and who can blame them? If, if what he's saying is true and the one true God has brought this storm upon us, what's he going to do when we kill this guy? Right? So they don't want to do that at first. They start trying to row even harder um, for the shore. And yet the storm only continues to increase in power and they can't do anything about it. And so they pick him up after first asking the forgiveness of God and they throw him into the sea and the storm's over. So at the end of chapter one, we find Jonah sinking to the bottom and the pagan sailors being overcome with the fear of the Lord and making vows to God and praying to him. From there, we have this complete switch in genre. We go from this high action narrative account to chapter two, which is Hebrew poetry. We suddenly find ourselves in the Psalms. As Jonah sinks into the ocean, he is swallowed by a great fish. What kind of fish? How is that even possible? We don't know. And honestly, those aren't questions that the text is asking here. It's just what happens. But suddenly, we find ourselves in the middle of this prayer. Jonah prays in this incredibly Hebrew poetic prayer form from within the fish. And it's a strange prayer in many ways because it appears on the surface to be a prayer of thanksgiving and not a prayer of like confession or or not even really like a prayer of repentance. Jonah praises the Lord for bringing him up from the pit from rescuing him from Sheol, which is like the Hebrew place of the dead. But at the same time, Jonah kind of blames God for his situation. You drove me away from your face. You cast me into the deep. So what's going on? So last week we illuminated a few of the inconsistencies in Jonah's prayer. (coughs) Excuse me. And we looked at some of the connections between his prayer and even like the Garden of Eden. And the fact that Adam and Eve disobey the Lord and then foolishly think, let's hide from him and he won't find us or he won't know that we're naked. And in many ways, Jonah is doing the exact same thing. We also noticed some of the language usage in his prayer. It was very Davidic language. It is the language of the Psalms in many ways. And so we wondered, surely Jonah doesn't think he's like a David figure. Surely he doesn't think he's a man after God's own heart. What's happening here? What we didn't have time to consider last week, though, is a connection that we don't necessarily get from the book of Jonah itself, but we do get it from the mouth of Jesus. We get it from the New Testament in the book of Matthew. We've got it up here on the screen. This is Matthew chapter 12, um, starting in verse 38. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, him being Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, 
but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus like validates the story of Jonah, and that's important because like many people want to see the story of Jonah as just story, like that it's kind of like a tall tale of the Old Testament. But, but Jesus validates it here, and he likens his time in the grave to Jonah's time in the fish. And, and, and that's interesting because we had ended chapter 2 by seeing that Jonah also, in a sense, is resurrected, isn't he? Like Jonah, in a sense, gets like spat back up onto the shore from out of the fish. He, he, in a sense, has gone from death to life, even though he has not really died. And as far as the Romans and the Jewish authorities were concerned with Jesus, he was dead and gone, right? And as far as the sailors were concerned with Jonah, that guy's dead, right? He's gone. And yet there comes a third day. By the way, the phrasing that Jesus used in that text of three days and three nights is, is phrasing that's somewhat like colloquial to the Hebrews. You actually see that phrasing throughout the Bible. Think about Noah. How long did it rain? It rained 40 days and 40 nights, right? It, it's kind of a way of phrasing a period of time. And a lot of scholars think that that, that phraseology, if you will, is, is, is literal, but not like absolutely literal, like not down to like the second literal. So with Noah, was it like exactly 40, 24-hour periods? It started raining, it hit that last hour, boom, the rain is gone. Probably not, probably not. Or, or um, with Jonah, was he in the belly of the fish for 36 hours exactly? Or is it like around that amount of time? Jesus is resurrected on the third day, but it wasn't exactly three 24-hour periods, was it? So many scholars think it's almost like saying something like, no more than three days, or no more than 40 days, or it rained for three days, or he's in the grave for three days, or in the fish for three days. So Jesus not only validates the story of Jonah, but he also validates the results of Jonah's efforts in Nineveh. And that's what we read about today in chapter 3. Jesus says that the repentance of Nineveh was so real that in the last days, when the resurrection of the dead occurs and when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, that the people of Nineveh will rise up from the dead and their repentance and their faithfulness will actually condemn the lack of faithfulness and repentance on the part of the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' day. The faith of the people of Nineveh will only serve to like illuminate the lack of faith and repentance on the part of the scribes and Pharisees. So, so not only is what we're reading about real, and, and this, is, this is fascinating, not only is it real in a historical sense, but Jesus says that it will have ramifications and repercussions in the future, even from our day to day. 
that the people of Nineveh who repented at the preaching of Jonah thousands of years ago will be raised in the resurrection of the dead and their faithfulness will speak against those who are unfaithful. That's fascinating to me. If you would look with me at our text in Jonah 3. It says, Jonah arose in verse 3 and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth, and Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So two things to begin with here. One is the city itself, and the other is Jonah's message to the city. Nineveh, on multiple occasions throughout this book, has been called great. Um, And that's really primarily a statement on the size of the city of Nineveh. It's a a big city. It's a great city. But the Hebrew word that's used there is the Hebrew word gadol. Gadol. And and you may notice it, it uses this many times. It calls the city great on multiple occasions, not only in this chapter, but here in the book of Jonah. The city is Gadol, it's big. And so other things that are Gadol in the Old Testament, uh, Genesis 1 verse 16, and God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. So God made the sun and the moon. He made these two Gadol things up in the sky, right? These These huge bodies that we can see from down here. Another one, Genesis one twenty one, and maybe this is perhaps a bit of foreshadowing for Jonah. Genesis one twenty one. so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. God created the gadol, the giant, massive sea creatures. Nineveh, according to verse 3, is exceedingly gadol. It's exceedingly large. And it's so large that it's three days journey in breadth. And it's not totally clear like what the text is saying there. Is it telling us that the city was three days away from where Jonah was when he, when he started heading in that direction? Like it's going to take him three days to get there? Or is it that the city would take three days to walk across? Most scholars recognize that Nineveh was a very large city during the time of Jonah, but most think it it would have taken less time if you just like started at one side and walked to the other. Like three days is a long time. Like that's a, that's a huge city. So what they think, and, and I'm on board with this, is, is the notion that it took Jonah three days to make his way through the city proclaiming the word of the Lord. Not just he started at one end and walked immediately to the other side of the city. But nevertheless, it is huge. It's actually uh, still a city today, Um, and it's actually still a very large city today. It's just not called Nineveh very often anymore, Um, and it's actually a city that you've possibly heard a lot about or are somewhat familiar with, uh, especially as a modern American, Um, and if you were around and remember anything about the war in Iraq in the early 2000s, because in today's world, this city's known as Mosul in the country of Iraq. And if you remember back in 2003, it was the site of some significant battles. Um, And in particular, it was the place where American forces killed Saddam Saddam Hussein's two sons, Uday and Kusay. I don't know if you remember those two guys, but, but that's where that happened in the ancient city of Nineveh, which is still there today and is still a site of battle and great controversy. 
There's also a sense in which the city was gadol in, in that the Lord cares about it and that it's, it's important to the Lord. Like it's a great city. It's something that God cares about. The very last line of the book of Jonah is God saying to Jonah, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle, (laughs) is what God says. God says, should I not care about this place where there are all of these people and all of this livestock and they don't know? They don't even know that they are unfaithful. They don't even know that they haven't repented. They, They don't even know who I am. They're ignorant. So should I not care about them because they're pagans or because they worship other gods just in their ignorance? Should I I not take pity on them? This This is the question that God poses to Jonah because remember, the story of Jonah is a subversive story about a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. So even at the end, even after they repent, And Jonah's angry. He's furious that they've repented and God has relented from destroying them. God says, why should I not care about them? Jonah arrives in Nineveh and preaches. As we said, he preaches this eight-word message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And and last week I called that a half-hearted message because what we know about Jonah from the rest of the book is that his heart's not in it. It's not an impassioned plea, right? He's given them eight words. He's telling them what God told him to tell them, but that's all he's given them. He's not begging with them to turn to the Lord. And he goes outside the city after he declares his message because he's honestly thinking, there's no way that they're ever going to repent. And I'm going to get to sit out here and just watch God rain fire on this place. So he declares this message to them. He's telling them the word that God has given them, given him. And yet, the people believed God. The people received this message. They didn't believe Jonah, which I think it's interesting. It says they believed God. The Bible paints this as a moment of almost like instantaneous repentance. They hear it, they believe it, and they do it. And, and it's, it permeates the city from the rich to the poor, from common people to royalty. We see that the king issues this decree calling for a full fast, no food, no water. Everyone calls out to the Lord in forgiveness. Everybody puts on sackcloth and sits in ashes. And it says even the livestock has to do this as well. That's how far they go to like show the Lord like the depths of their humility in the face of their own sin. The one who supposedly knows the Lord and fears the Lord in this story, we don't see him grieving for his sin in this way. We don't see him groveling before the Lord, begging for forgiveness. We don't see him repenting, but the people who don't know their right hand from their left, the people who don't know of the goodness of God, 
hear an eight-word message, and they immediately call for a full fast, and they put on sackcloth and ashes, and they beg the Lord for his forgiveness. So in many ways, I think Jesus is drawing a comparison between the man Jonah and the Pharisees and scribes of Jesus' day. Both Jonah and the Pharisees are suffering from the potential like numbing effects of organized religion. Not that organized religion in and of itself is like a bad or evil thing. That's certainly not the case. But, but when the worship of God becomes just some ritual that you participate in, or it becomes just some vow that you've taken, or it becomes just some set of beliefs that you espouse, but it's not the actual posture or desire of your heart, then you can be numbed to the actual call of God. And, and, and your heart can be numbed to the things that God's heart goes out to. Your heart can be hardened. And in the case of Jonah, his quote-unquote fear of the Lord winds up looking like a complete lack of fear, whereas these people who didn't know look like the people who truly fear the Lord. One of, this, one of the ways that this manifests itself for both Jonah and the Pharisees is that it leads them to feel superior to other people. Let me say that again. One of the ways that this leads Jonah and the Pharisees of Jesus' day into like sort of this numb state is that it leads them to feel superior to other people. They think that because they are Jews that God cares only about them. And, and this is one of the big points that God is trying to get across to Jonah. Why do you think that I should only care about you and your people? Do you think that you're the only one I love? Do you think that you're the only ones I want the best for? God is on our side. So we are right and everyone else is wrong. We are saved and everyone else is damned. We are wise and everyone else is foolish. But who are the truly wise people in this story? If wisdom is evidenced by what you do, who are the truly wise people in this story? Who are the people who are truly saved in this story? It's the Ninevites. And it's the sailors. Like they're the ones who we see coming before the Lord, taking vows, asking repentance. And so here's what I hope this illuminates for us today. This is not a problem that's unique to Jonah. It's not a problem that's unique to the scribes and Pharisees. It's certainly not a problem that's unique to like the Jews or anything like that. American Christianity has exactly the same problem. Many of us have grown up in a nominal Christian culture that has exactly the same problem. The American version of Christianity inclines us to think that we have God on our side and that everybody else is our opponent and thus everybody else is like an enemy of us or an enemy of God even. Muslims, homosexuals, liberals, those who support abortion, and on and on. This seems to be who American Christianity is against when the foundational framework of the Judeo-Christian worldview is that if you truly know the Lord, if you truly fear the Lord, then what it reveals to you is that everyone who is other is not your enemy. Everyone else is your neighbor. Everyone else is your neighbor, even if they're your enemy. 
Rather than viewing the groups I mentioned and others as people made in the image of God, whose primary sickness is simply a lack of the gospel, it's the fact that they don't know their right hand from their left. Our nominal Christian culture tells us that the real goal is not to share Christ with them or to share the good news of the gospel with them, but to gain political power over such people so that we can silence their voices and create like a utopian society where everybody thinks like we do. And what we don't realize is that is what God is accomplishing through Christ. Like that is the gospel that Jesus is returning and he will separate the wheat from the chaff and and the good wheat from the weeds and the sheep from the goats and his kingdom will come and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and those who love the Lord will worship him forever. That, That is what he's accomplishing. And he's the only one who truly knows whose heart is where. And meanwhile, God is saying, should I not care about these people? Should I not care about those who don't know and who don't know their right hand from their left? Oh, my name, it ain't nothing. My age, it means less. The country I come from is called the Midwest. I was taught and brought up there. The laws to abide in that land that I live in has God on its side. Oh, the history books tell it. They tell it so well. The cavalry's charged. The Indians fell. The cavalry's charged. The Indians died. Oh, the country was young with God on its side. The Spanish-American War had its day, and the Civil War, too, was soon laid away. And the names of the heroes I was made to memorize with guns in their hands and God on their side. The First World War, boys, it came and it went. The reason for fighting I never did get, but I learned to accept it, accept it with pride, for you don't count the dead when God's on your side. The Second World War came to an end. We forgave the Germans, and then we were friends. Though they murdered six millions in the ovens they fried, the Germans now, too, have God on their side. I've learned to hate the Russians all through my whole life. If another war comes, it's them we must fight. To hate them and fear them, to run and to hide, and accept it all bravely with God on my side. But now we got weapons of chemical dust. If fire them, we're forced to, then fire them, we must. One push of the button and a shot the world wide. And you never ask questions when God's on your side. Though through many a dark hour, I've been thinking about this, that Jesus Christ was betrayed by a kiss. But I can't think for you, you'll have to decide whether Judas Iscariot had God on his side. So now as I'm leaving, I'm weary as hell. The confusion I'm feeling, ain't no tongue can tell. The words fill my head and fall to the floor that if God's on our side, he'll stop the next war. That's Bob Dylan. And don't don't miss the point. I don't think this is a song about like pacifism or nonviolence, even though those are perfectly good things. I think it's about the ways that we co-opt the name of God to achieve our ends, to suit our purposes. And the scriptures call that taking the Lord's name in vain. When when we use him to accomplish what we want rather than submitting to him so that he can accomplish what he wants through us. So friends, let us recognize today that Christ has called us to love our neighbors as ourselves. 
This is the foundation of Christianity. And not just because the Bible says it, but because it's exactly what Christ has done for us. And the neighbors that he's called us to love are not just the neighbors who think like us or look like us. And to label someone as our enemy, even if they are, does not absolve us from love because Christ has also called us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. So next week, we'll see Jonah's anger at the fact that God cares about the people of Nineveh and that God doesn't just destroy them even though they've done heinous things, terrible, violent, murderous things. We'll see his anger at the fact that God allows them to exist, those gadol enemies of Israel. And yet, let us never forget that we were also enemies of God. And it was while we were sinners that Christ died for us. And so we've been given the opportunity to experience the very same thing that the people of Nineveh were given the opportunity to experience. And in the same way that God says this to Jonah, I think he says to us, and if I cared about you, should I not also care about others as well? This has nothing to do with like political power. It has everything to do with the paradigm shift of true gospel-centered faith. Jesus' example is that of one who gave up power in great humility and sacrificed so that the world might be saved through him. And he tells us, church, to go and do likewise. So let us pray. Father, we need your help and strength because the things that you have called us to do in your name are things that we cannot do of our own power. And you have made it clear to us that the path that you have set before us is a difficult path, even though the burden that you place on us is light. And so we find complete and total freedom in you. And yet, Father, you have sent us out in the midst, in many cases, of our enemies to be your ambassadors and to declare your good news. And I pray, Father, that you would give us all, because I am, I am guilty of this as well, I pray that you would give us all eyes to see those who are not like us as people that you care about. And that in many cases, they're people who have not come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And so Father, I pray that you give us wisdom and vision as we go into our everyday lives to increasingly seek to go deeper in our knowledge of Christ and relationship with him and, and not just so that we might be puffed up but so that we might better model the way of Jesus 
not only for those who don't know him, Father, but maybe even for those who would say that they do. Give us grace because we fail so often. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name. Amen. Stand with us.